From the Center for the Study of Race, Politics and Culture at the University of Chicago, New Dawn, a podcast about understanding the connections between race, capitalism and neoliberalism with your host, Michael Dawson. It's my pleasure today to welcome an old friend, colleague, comrade, <laughs> uh, Lester K. Spence, Associate Professor of Political Science and African Studies at John Hopkins University, specialized in the study of black, racial, and urban politics in the wake of the neoliberal turn. Spence is the author of Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics. He's also the author of Steering the Darkness, the Limits of Hip-Hop and Black Politics, which won the W.E.B. Du Bois Distinguished Book Award. Thanks for joining the New Dawn podcast. Oh, thanks for asking me, man. It's good to be here, virtually. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. So a few weeks ago, we were virtually together again, talking to a bunch of young activists, uh, black activists primarily, about which way the movement needs to develop, what are some of the challenges, political, economic, what are some of the possibilities for the future. And one of the aspects that I think we were all struggling with was trying to think about the connection between, on one hand, economics and politics and what it means in this era. And secondly, though, what's changed about black politics? I mean, we have these young activists building social movements and social movement organizations once again. But it's not the environment that you organized in when you were an undergraduate, uh, which went, or it was certainly was not the environment that I organized in when I was an undergraduate. What's changed, in your opinion, about black politics and the, the environment that these young activists are facing today? That's a great question. So one thing that's really changed, I think, is that the economy pretty much dropped out. Right. So if you think about it, I so I graduated from undergrad in 19 in the fall of 91. And all the people that I graduated with, whatever their racial background, was able to take advantage of the new of, of the of the new economy. So we were what a year away from Bill Clinton being elected. We were three, four years away from the kind of the Internet explosion and the dot com boom. And a number of my folk were able to take advantage of that directly or indirectly. They were able to get to immediately go into the workforce. They were able to start families if they wanted one. They were able to get homes if they wanted them. And that's at the high end, right? Right. And then and then at the at the at the bottom end, there was in, there was increasing support for basically killing the welfare state. So Bill Clinton actually gets elected on a promise to kind of kill the welfare state on one hand and then ramp up punitive approaches to law enforcement on, on the other. And then, so you fast forward from that. And then uh, also, you know, is going on around that time is port for unions are dropping like a rock. And then we have the mayors that are beginning to the black mayors that are elected at that time. They're kind of like second generation black mayors, people like Dennis Archer in Detroit. And they're articulating support for what we now know to be like neoliberal policies, right? They're, right? they're thinking about their cities in really entrepreneurial terms. They're thinking about themselves in entrepreneurial terms. They're, as opposed to having even a liberal black agenda, 
you know, which a number of their predecessors did, you know, they're doubling down on bringing corporations back into the city, right? And there's a slice of black people who actually get benefits from that, right? But you fast forward more than 20 years and the economy just doesn't work as well for anybody. It really doesn't work well for, for people on the, on the bottom end. And, you know, so the, what, when Clinton passes, Clinton gets welfare reform, a re- welfare repeal through, you have a five-year lifetime limit. So now we've got this large, this really large population that's predominantly folks of color that, that, that don't really have access to the welfare state in any sense that we had it in the 80s and the 90s, right? And then the top end, people who are graduating from people from places like Michigan or Hopkins, they're not only graduating into an economy that doesn't really work for them, unlike my generation, they're graduating with tens and thousands of dollars of debt, right? right. So, right? so what that does is it creates this really, it, it, it puts them in this pincer. It puts young folk in this pincer. Either they're able to go to college, but they're coming out and not finding jobs and, and are saddled with debt, or they're not able to go to college. You know, a, a place like Baltimore, we really got four, maybe four high schools that routinely send their kids to places like Hopkins or they're not able to go to college and then they're caught up in this in this other economy, economy that's deeply deeply problematic. So I think those are some differences that re- are really 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 important to kind of think about, right? The combination of the market on the one hand, what the market is doing, and then the state on the other hand, and what type of changes we see in in, in public policy. Well, you're from Detroit, I know, and you certainly have been living and working in Baltimore as well. And you're deeply concerned and tied to urban populations, particularly urban black populations. How has this played out for urban politics, urban black politics, those populations we find in some of these devast- You know, I'm from Chicago and I work in Chicago. And yeah. you know, I would assume, and in fact, I know that some of the same you know, trends and tendencies are, can be found here too. How has that worked out? Well, so in a place like Detroit, so over the, what uh, Detroit actually goes uh, in bankruptcy and is placed under emergency financial management. And a lot of a lot of listeners understand this, but it's, it bears saying out loud. Both those project, both those processes were political processes. That is, it was a political decision that kind of shaped how Detroit, the dynamics that forced Detroit to declare bankruptcy. And, um, and there's a number of different levels to it. There is Kwame Kilpatrick, who is the who is the mayor after Dennis Archer. There is his decision to to make a number of really, really bad deals with with bondholders. Then there, there's the larger framework by which cities are kind of forced to deal with bondholders in general as opposed to collect taxes. Then there's the state legislature dynamic that actually creates the emergency financial manager legislation and then kind of defines that legislate defines that dynamic in such a way that it just so happens that a city like Detroit is forced to go into bankruptcy. So you've got something like this, not the exact same thing, but something like this happening in city after city after city, really in cities with large black populations, but increasingly in other cities. And it reduces their ability to provide social services. So you've got in a, in a place like Detroit or Baltimore, you've really, really got this stark distinction between folks who have and then folks who have not. And then you've got a significant increase in the ability of real estate uh, capital 
and development capital to kind of shape what happens in these cities. So in those contexts, policing ends up taking a very specific shape. Policing ends up being in a place like Baltimore or Detroit ends up being kind of an agent of social control because as cities actually want development, as they actually reach out to these this kind of creative class population, they need the police to act in a certain way to kind of protect them, right? So, in the, so given this, what we see is an increase in police actions, and then we see this population that's uh, that's young, and in a place like Baltimore, predominantly black, that really isn't having it, right? So you've got the conditions for increased social control, heavy-handed social control tactics. You've got conditions where cities are increasingly divided economically and divided racially. And that type, that that generates, it, it's not simple like this, but that time generates the conditions where it's more likely that we have something like what we call the uprising in Baltimore. And hell, I mean, the what, the 50th anniversary of the Detroit Rebellion was, I believe, yesterday, was like July 20, uh, July 24th. So what we see are conditions that are not the same as, but similar to the conditions in the late 60s. One of the differences I see in Chicago, which is, I think, has exacerbated some of the, the trends that you're talking about, is that Chicago has become even more self-identified. It's not only a center, a creative center, um, like some of the coastal cities self-imagine themselves to be, but a financial center, and that's real. It's the second largest financial center in North America after New York City. And what that has done is really exacerbated inequality. So the government is very much about supporting the tech sector, supporting corporate headquarters. We don't make things here anymore, but the corporate headquarters are here. And we're certainly about finances, commodities, derivatives, and all the type of securitization of the economy. That's also one of the trends that's happened since the 1990s. And what that's meant is that it's sort of an abandonment of black folks and poor people. I mean, the Chicago public schools are in trouble, not because Chicago's a poor city, it's just because nobody politically is going to support the Chicago public schools, so they don't have any resources whatsoever. And one of the patterns I've seen here, and I'm wondering to what degree you see this in some of the other cities around the country, is that, as you know, Chicago was the model of the North American exceptionalism, with poor people being in in the middle of the city and rich folks being on the outside of the city. And that's totally reversed in the last 20, 25 years where poor people, particularly black people, and, and Latinos to some degree are being pushed out of the center of the city. High income people, predominantly white, but not exclusively white, coming into the central part of the city. So we look more like a European city with poor folks, particularly for, for poor folks of color in these very low resource suburbs that have no, that have no public services whatsoever. And that's where the black, you know, so that we've lost black population, and that's where it's gone. It's gone to mostly to these really poor suburbs. Do you see that elsewhere? Well, so you see it in, so you see it in Baltimore and Detroit, and to lesser extent in St. Louis, but it takes different forms. So a city like Detroit is still big enough to include, is big enough to include Manhattan, San Francisco, and Boston, and have 40 square miles left over. Mm-hmm. Right. So and and that and Detroit's population is now 600,000 where it used to be 2 million in like 1950. So there so you're not so the poor population in Detroit is just going to be moved outside of Midtown and downtown. Yeah. Right? So Midtown and downtown is being developed. 
Dan Gilbert, the guy who owns the Cleveland Cavaliers. He owns approximately 80 properties in downtown, if not more. Um, he has his own private security force down there. What you see in a place like Detroit is them building deeply in downtown and just moving people to the outskirts within the city, right? What you see in Baltimore is something similar, where I'm, I'm in my Johns Hopkins office. Johns Hopkins has been a primary developer. They've uh, redeveloped the area around his hospital. They've redeveloped the corridor that my campus is on. And that those populations are being moved out outside but further in the city, not to the suburbs. And then on a similar note, we got a, a currently got a proposal that that's about to go through where that the city council passed after after contestation, where Kevin Plank, the guy who is the CEO of Under Armour, he has his own development company. They just received $600 million in tax subsidies from the city to basically build kind of a second downtown in Baltimore. Now that area was empty. So it's not like you're going to be moving black people out of that area, kind of like they move black poor people out of, of Hopkins around the hospital. But what you do have is a significant altering of fiscal priorities, which were never really all about, you know, black and working class populations anyway, but is even less so. So I think Chicago, what's happening in Chicago is happening to other cities, but the places that, I, that I'm most familiar with, what we see is not so much movement to the suburbs yet, but movement, just further movement within the city. In fact, what I think we see in Chicago was pioneered to some degree by what we see in Southern California, but particularly Northern California, with first black folks being moved. I mean, I was there when it happened in the 70s. Yes. Black folks yes. were moved out of San Francisco. And so yes. were the Japanese, too, at the same time, because those communities yeah. were, were neighbors to each other. In fact, friendly, politicized neighbors to each other, and the Filipino yeah. community, too. And then, when you know... I did a lot of, let's say, organizing and other stuff when I was in Oakland. <laughs> and the idea that all the areas that my you know, friends from Stanford were scared to go to are now, you know, that Oakland, which was the center of black politics in, in California, too, even more than L.A. In, in, in many ways, has now been totally racially remade. It's just stunning. Yeah, so Oakland was actually the case I had in mind when I was thinking in the back of my head, what's another city mm -hmm. that has a similar dynamic to what you know in uh, Chicago? And Oakland was the first city that comes to mind, right? So whereas a city like Detroit, again, you've got so much land, they got to, you know, you can't, it just it doesn't make sense to move people out. You still want to kind of draw people in. And even drawing people in, you can still draw people in in a way that still allows working class populations to live in the city. They just won't have any social services. Right. In a place like Oakland, Oakland has a small enough footprint where it really is about increasing the land values mm -hmm. of almost everything in the city and then moving people out. Exactly right. Okay, so, mm -hmm. so w one of the, I mean, you've talked about, and I know you, you, one of your current projects involves thinking about police as an agent of social control. How has that played out given these changing economic conditions? Can you say more about that? Yeah, yeah. So so around 19 or 70 or so, or 1970 or so, you know, around a, a time we had kind of identified as a neoliberal turn, cities became far less able to collect revenue in the form of taxes. So what you see, in, particularly in cities like Ferguson, which is really kind of a, sub, a, a small town, but, you know, cities like Ferguson what you actually what you actually end up seeing is 
cities relying far more on taxing on fines and fees as a way to collect revenue, right? Mm -hmm. So Ferguson, 21% of their revenue comes from, or before the justice, uh, the consent decree, came from policing. And if you actually were to look at a larger list of St. Louis suburbs, like the, 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 the suburbs right outside St. Louis City, a number of them, 38, 39, 40% of their revenue comes from, from fees, right? And then in the Ferguson case, people are actually, you, you know, you see from the text that people are actually connecting raises and promotions to the ability of these police officers to, to get fees. Now, it's, and it's important to note that the police in Ferguson were poorly paid off the, from the jump. So they were making basically kind of the equivalent, like $15 an hour. So you can see how you're, how this ends up becoming a move where you're basically pitting working class whites because uh, Ferguson's police force was predominantly white against working class and, and poor black Ferguson residents and in St. Louis County and St. Louis city, city folk in general. So that's kind of one case, right? And then the other case when you're talking about your bigger cities is the police end up working more as agents of social control where there, where you see increased spending on, on policing in general as a percentage of, as a, in raw numbers and as a percentage of the, of the city budget. So in the Baltimore case, Baltimore spent $145 million in police in 1990, and they're now spending $500 million in police. Now, by way of comparison, they spent $37 million or so, or $30 million or so in 1990, $30 or $37 million now, right? And if you look at where they're concentrating their policing, they're concentrating their policing in the central business district and then in areas with really high numbers of poor black folk. Right. So in that case, they're not doing it for the purpose of fines and fees. Fines and fees don't really constitute a big portion of Baltimore city revenue. They're really doing it to protect population, certain types of populations and capital from a population they believe to be kind of risky. So it's no coincidence that the neighborhood that Freddie Gray was born in and was killed in a Santown Winchester they spend $17 million incarcerating its residents. That's more than any other neighborhood, I believe, in the state of Maryland. So those are two models we have kind of in the modern moment, you know, the kind of the social control model. And you can add places like New York City definitely to that model. And then as well as Cleveland, Milwaukee, and then you have kind of the, the, the fees and the fee collection model. And those are like smaller municipalities like Ferguson. So I have a comment and a question. What you're reply, I think, really highlights is something that I've become aware of over the last year. It's the degree to which we need to pay much more attention to tax systems as an aspect of the maintenance of white supremacy. There's, particularly some of the historians are, have been joining you in this type of work. So there's the use of places like Baltimore, Chicago, and Cleveland, the use of tax liens illegally in, in many cases to seize black and brown property. And I just read another article by the same author that talks about how in the Jim Crow South, property taxes were used and the ability to assess the value of a property was used as a way to transfer wealth from black folks to white folks. And then, of course, the example that we see, you know, that Ferguson highlighted, but it's, it's very common in a certain, like you say, smaller type of city, of thinking about 
the police and the agents of social control as a revenue stream and a, a vital revenue yeah. stream, and not just a revenue stream, but a way that yeah. in, if we go back to some of Phil Thompson's work when he's when he talks about Du Bois, is the way that the work, white working class gets paid, and this has been true according to Du Bois since Reconstruction. Yeah. A significant portion of them is by policing folks of color. That's absolutely right. <laughs> Yeah. So, so the question I have is this data you have, and you presented some of this data at the meeting we were at. Is that publicly accessible? Yeah, it will be. I haven't made it accessible yet, but it will be. So I've been collecting data on just on the, on the Baltimore case going back from 1970 to now. And it's funny because you would think that something like that would be relatively straightforward and that the police department is a public institution. It should be easy to get this stuff. But it was the hardest, it was so hard to collect the raw data just for the year, just for how much they're spending in general. And then it was a, it was a, it, it was really, really hard to get fine-grained data to see exactly what they're spending money on. Is it salaries? Is it munitions? What exactly are they spending money on? Brother, and I'm I, from Chicago. I don't ever think getting public data is easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough, fair, fair enough, right? But, but, but yeah, it's this larger, if you think about it more broadly, it, it, as far as the, the move towards studying this stuff, yeah. I think that there is a lot to be said for studying national level trends, but it's, it's really, you know there's something wrong when, when it's really difficult to, to, to think of the people who are studying the police and political science. Right. right. I mean, so so it, criminology studies police. Sociologists study police a little bit. History but a it, little bit. Yeah. History a little bit. Political science. Very, very few. The only work I can think of is James Q. Wilson stuff. But that was done a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Right. So part of the project is not just to turn us back towards uh, analyzing kind of political economy and the way that the way that shapes racial politics. But it's also about creating the context where we can place institutions like the police back under democratic control. Exactly. Right? And, and, and collecting public data about them, which again should be straightforward, is part of that project. The only reason we know about Ferguson, like that should have been, that's something that should be well known. That's something that should be well known. But if it wasn't for the work of the Art City Defenders and the people who've been organizing in Ferguson, we would have had no idea. And we shouldn't be, the police shouldn't be black boxed. They've been black boxed basically for decades. Exactly right. One of the, and I think it might get harder in the short run at least, maybe in the medium run, because one of the, as you, you've talked about, one of the aspects of the neoliberal turn, I think a lot of us have talked about this, is the privatization of state resources, right? But one of the ways, one of the reasons that the Reagan administration really wanted to privatize census data and other type of public data was to stop these type of studies. And with the, with the acceleration of that trend at the federal level under the Trump administration, I think we're going to find it much harder to find some of this data as it gets privatized and locked up. So if you're a wealthy corporation that wants the data, you can pay tens of thousands of dollars or more to get it. But if you're somebody trying to, to hold public institutions accountable, it's going to be increasingly difficult. 
Yeah, and I think that's the, when I when I when I talk about this, I didn't so so much talk about it in in the in the virtual meeting we were at because we we're talking to you know talking to younger activists. But when we're thinking about this as scholars, right? Like I tend to believe that there's something to be said for scholarship as scholarship, but there's also something to be said for scholarship as part of political projects. So there's a sweet spot between the two, right? So how do we create kind of a new way to think about? political science that can actually hit that sweet spot. So we talk about, so what Journal of Politics, I believe just published an article that showed pretty definitively that the, that the, the larger the number of black people in the municipality, the more money that the municipality collects in revenue from fines and policing, right? Similarly, they found, or interestingly, they also found that the higher the number that adding black city council members reduces that, right? Now, it seems to me that that hits kind of a sweet spot, maybe not as sweet as I would like, but that hits kind of a sweet spot between stuff that's scholarship, you know, stuff that kind of helps us figure out how different context, different aspects of political context actually, uh, actually shapes political outcomes, but then that also kind of thinks about a political, that also is connected to a political project. Now, granted, again, I mean, my, I think that we're beyond the point where we should be about necessarily just electing black city council people. That's not really the route. But still, that gives us a way to think about, like, OK, what could political change? What do we actually need to do to, to create political change? And then by focusing on uh, on tax revenue, it gives us more of a, a, of a quote unquote Afro-realist perspective as as opposed to another perspective that's maybe less attentive to political economy. That's right. And, and, you know, we've been fighting this battle now, some of us, for over 25 years. And what I mean by that is when we try to bring our the best scholarship, open up veins that political in political economy or the study of race that political scientists studied when it was like people like James Q. Wilson or Sid Verba, you know, studying it in the 70s was perfectly fine, but now we're told it's not political science anymore, right? Right. Or we're told that the only way to study political economy is to look at the, uh, the unaggregated choices of individuals without looking at the institutional or cultural context. Yeah. So we have a lot of work to do inside of political science, and some of the political science that we have to do, I believe, has to be done outside of political science. Yeah, I think it's absolutely right. And I, I think there are enough of us doing this work where we can begin to think about so the so the so what what a group of us are trying to do here in Baltimore is create basically like a Baltimore school. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you take somebody. So if you think about David Harvey, a lot of David Harvey's critical interventions he made while he was a geographer here at Hopkins and in Baltimore. And a lot of his work actually talks about how class works in Baltimore. Now, the big challenge with David Harvey then and now is that race doesn't really seem to exist to him. What right? is that? <laughs> yeah, what is race? What is that thing? <laughs> what is it? Race? Race what? Like race to the top? I mean, race what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean... No say, young glass. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, like, you know, like what? Like, come on, get get the... I mean, that's, this is the podcast. You can't really curse, but it's like, get the F out of here. <laughs> But so a number of us are becoming more, far more attentive to the way that race and space and class work in this place like Baltimore. And we're beginning to think about how to use Baltimore as not as a laboratory, but as a space from which to articulate kind of a modern take on what and how race, class and space function in, uh, in, in modern cities. And again, part of that is analytical and about creating more space within the academy, within political science and the social sciences, to look at this stuff. 
And but part of it is, but a big part of that is political. Like, how do we create this? Create the create the the framework whereby people who are organizing on the ground can can problem solve these spaces in ways that are actually politically helpful. Well, one of the arguments I've had with colleagues here, and I'm thinking of one colleague who shall go unnamed in particular, is something that you mentioned, which is the extraordinary fondness that academics in general and political science are not an exception to have for esoteric writing, right? Yeah. So the degree to which we're going to have to, I mean, there's two things. The, the sort of baby set step is making our work more accessible to folks. Mm -hmm. But the step that I think that I learned when I was an activist that I think a lot of political science have way too much false pride is the ability to learn from, from the folks you're working with in communities. Yeah. And, yeah. So one of the best scholars in the Baltimore area is a brother in public health. His name is, is Lawrence Brown, really, really good brother. And he articulated a really simple way to understand what's going on in Baltimore. If you look at map of Baltimore, and you, it looks kind of like a butterfly, particularly if you take that map and then just layer onto that map, like the benefits that a city can dole out and then the, the anti-benefits, the malfare that a city can dole out. When you look at that, when you see that most of the, uh, of the benefits that a city, that Baltimore doles out, takes the form of an L, and then most of the problematic aspects of, of that, most of the malfare that the city doles out takes the form of the butterfly. The butterfly is where all the black people live. <laughs> the, the L is where all the white people live, right? So Lawrence was like, listen, he just start calling it the black butterfly and the white L in almost every indicator, every even something like bike lanes, right? It all takes the form of that black butterfly and that white L. Now the thing is, is because because Lawrence Brown isn't a political scientist, and then to a certain extent, because they're because people look at certain schools differentially, it's like outside of this context, people would people would would cast aspersions at that conception. But that conception really, really, really works. Right. I mean, it just works. So now it doesn't work perfectly right, right. now because it doesn't really take into account class dynamics in the same way. But but that type of thing, like finding that there and most people, whereas most people would look to a place like Hopkins first, it's like, no, to some of the best work on this stuff is being done at Morgan State down the street by a brother with, with who, who hasn't been fully resourced because black schools are, aren't resourced like white ones are. And that, that's what we have to do. So it's not just about learning from the folk in the, in the city, right? It's also about understanding that we've got this rich body of work that's produced in other academic contexts. And then on top of that, there's this rich body of work that's being produced before us that we're only, you know, that's been there that we have to kind of recapture. So the, here I'm thinking about the work of, I've been thinking about this Afro-pessimist turn. Right. And I think I've been writing about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really it's been really it's been highly productive, but it just jumped out at me. Like when they put the libidinal economy ahead of a political economy and when they promote the concept of uh, social death by somebody like Orlando Patterson, who's really had really, really conservative ideas about race, as opposed to the really rich framework by somebody like W.E.B. Du Bois and Black Reconstruction, that has really, really deep political outcomes. Oh. And, and those political outcomes, those political outcomes aren't very good. 
or one of the ways I've, I've characterized some of the Afro-pessimism genre is as postmodern nationalism. Oh, wow, yeah. And what I mean by that, there's a certain cultural studies turn to it, right? Mm-hmm. That's very much is congruent with a lot of trends in various aspects of post-structuralist thinking. But there's also a nationalist turn, and where the nationalist turn is where they come back to a structural analysis. And a structural analysis is a historically invariant and impervious to changes in the political economy, mm-hmm. and b solely based on race. So just as we have colleagues in political science, there's not very many Afro pessimists in political science, but we certainly yeah. have a number of leftists in political science who tell us not to study race and that we're we're destroying the working class whenever we talk about racial disparities. Yeah. But both of them are making the same error and leading people down very, very dangerous blind alleys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so we're so we're placed in a we're placed in a really in a really tight spot. Where whereas in political science we are consistently saying, okay, race matters, and then and then more and then to a certain extent political economy matters. Although that part is changing, people are really becoming more attentive to political economy. And then in black studies and in cultural studies. We're having to say, you know what, political economy and kind of mater- institutions matter. And well, hell, capitalism matters, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And, 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 it's, and it's, you know, I never thought I'd be the one fighting for political science. But I find myself increasingly saying, listen, political science actually matters. And, I, and I'm talking primarily to black political scientists saying, listen, we actually need to seize this terrain. And to be fair, it's not just, in this case, it's not just not just Afro-pessimists, it's folk like, you know, it's folk like, like Eddie Glaude, who really, you know, who, ha- who talks about politics, but really doesn't, they, he doesn't really have a rich understanding of how institutions work. He doesn't have a rich understanding about how class functions, right? And that stuff matters as far as the scholarship that's being produced, because you want to get the story right. You can't get the story right if you don't really understand how institutions function. But then you can't, you, you can't generate political solutions that are helpful if you don't know how institutions function, if you, if, you, if you don't have a sense of what politics actually is. You just don't. Well, I totally agree with that. And I'm, I've been one of the things I've been happy about within political science is the tent toward people studying race and politics to really start taking institutions extremely seriously. But on the other hand, I have to be, I mean, part of it because of the three years I spent outside the University of Chicago at that other place. <laughs> Go blue. <laughs> no, I'm not talking oh, about... Couple, oh, you're not talking about Michigan. Yeah, oh, yeah, that yeah, other place. That, uh, that yeah, other place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that yeah. it became, you know, I mean, I, this is a lesson I think I have to learn every five to ten years, and partly because of my own background. But class really does matter. So I don't really expect folks, you know, at Princeton, or at least some folks at Princeton, right. to automatically have the most astute analysis of how class dynamics work within black politics. That's probably asking a bit much. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, you're right. So that's why what we need is we need, we basically need projects like what you and Megan have been doing, projects like what they're doing at UCLA. To a certain extent, you see this a a bit at Northwestern where people are really taking this stuff seriously and generating the capacity to actually have a healthy debate. Right. To make a really aggressive insertion within political science where you have people like my colleague Bill Connolly, who's really invested in the white working class and in talking about the white working class project that I guess somebody needs to do. But it seems to me we should be talking about racism instead and then to make an aggressive insertion in black study spaces to say, well, you know what? And this debate is healthy, but you know what? No, class really matters. Institutions matter. 
right? Race right. is not, right? We, we really need to take institutions serious. We need to take politics serious. So one of the, I mean, political scientists are always getting jammed up by historians, right? So I was recently talking to a historian who made the following argument, which I'm not buying, but I want to get your reaction to it, yeah. which is, it's sort of it's a, it's a combination of an argument that you can find in Thomas Piketty's work about um, growing inequality in, uh, globally, particularly in the global north, and also the sort of long duration, which uh, the long duration argument in political in, of the civil of the study of the civil rights movement, both of which I think are, are healthy interventions. But the argument is that it really the, the claim is that we don't really have to take neoliberalism that seriously. And the reason that neoliberalism is perhaps a better way to put it is an unhelpful analytical framework is that what, we've, what we're really seeing now is a return to the normal. The normal was the Gilded Age of the late 19th and early 20th century and what came before that, and the Gilded Age is what we're seeing now. The 20th century, by that, by that standard, then becomes the exception. So what we don't have is a, is a neoliberalism. We have a return to sort of standard liberalism, standard capitalism, and that therefore when thinking about black society, think about black social change, black social movements, and black politics, a neoliberal framework is unhelpful. No, I, I, I push back against, yeah, I, I, no, no, no. Well, so, Say a so bit more. Way, yeah, so one way to think about this is until neoliberalism actually attained the negative valence that it's starting to attain, people use this term to describe themselves, mm-hmm. right? They, they use the term to describe themselves. And it seems to me that one of the things that historians are, are big about and should be big about is using the language people use to describe themselves, right? So, so we see this. There's a record, a long record of people using that term to describe what they were doing, juxtaposing it against things that came before. That's one thing. But then digging deeper, there is a very, we can look at, for example, cities using, cities increasingly relying on, on, corporate, on corporate capital and significantly decreasing their ability to take, collect tax revenue. We can actually look at, at more and more sophisticated attempts to actually transform governments for the purposes of businesses, to, to, for the purpose of business, to actually model them on the business. That is a very different model than what we have before. Now, the inequality, now, if we were just simply plotting inequality, yes, we have higher levels of inequality now than we did in 1929. So in that way, we are returning to a Gilded Age. But in thinking about why that turn occurs, why we have more inequality now, we can't simply look at the 1930s and say, oh, they're doing, or ni- rather 1920s, and say, oh, we're doing the same thing now. No, they're, they're, I, I, we're not. This is a very, this is a new thing. Well, I think there, I mean, we, we come at, at neoliberalism not in opposition to each other, but from different angles, which I think are both useful. So if you think about it, about the way you think about uh, neoliberalism, or one of the ways you think about it, I mean, it's, the way you think about it is complex, obviously, is uh, governmentality, right? And so part of what, mm-hmm. you're, what, you're, what you're just described with the change in governmentality and how illogically the role of the state is viewed and, what, and how that has yeah. changed as a result of neo- neoliberalism. One of the ways I come at thinking about neoliberalism is thinking about the underlying political economy. And if we look at levels of debt and financialization, we have never seen anything at the levels of debt. Yeah. It was, we, yes. and, we, and the way that an ordinary worker, somebody who works at, well, let's say we're in 1970 with GM, somebody that works for the government, somebody that works at a university, somebody that works at a hospital, 
their future is tied to financial markets. That was yes. never the case before. Yes. That is something yes. very, very new. Yes. And we have not thought out the consequences of either the changes in gov governmentality, although I think there's more political scientists working on that. Although just as in political economy, there's a lack of attention to race, I think also when in political theory, there's people who think about governmentality also could pay more attention to race, which is why your intervention is so critical. But I, I think both of those tendencies of neoliberalism, something we have not seen before and have affected black people and black politics quite profoundly. Yeah. Now, 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 it's one thing, for example, to say that there are roots of the that some of the dynamics we're seeing now, they have historical roots. Right. Right. So, for example, you take something like the like the derivative market. Right. Like like that really end up causing problems in the housing market. It will probably end up doing the same thing for student loans. You actually see elements of this dynamic going as far back in 1827 and like Louisiana, they created the Louisiana state legislature created a, a property bank that bundled mortgages collateralized, collateralized by slaves, right? Mm -hmm. The bank sold bonds in the U.S. Each bond gave the bondholder like a right to a slave sized amount of labor, right? So we can say that there's something in what we're doing now and what's and, and what happened in 19th century Louisiana, but you're absolutely right that that doesn't go far enough. What the uh, what we're looking at now with financial with with the financialization basically of the U.S. economy is something we don't have a we don't have a there we, there is no predecessor for this. There and, isn't one. I mean, one of the ways to think about it, and we you know we can credit the work of a number of historians who have looked at questions of race and slavery and people like Megan who began to look at Jim Crow, I mean, race and, race and capitalism and people like Megan who began to look at Jim Crow and, and capitalism, is that it's, it's clearly been the case that in the Atlantic and Pacific, and we're talking, given what we're talking about today, the United States, the bourgeoisie's fortunes were founded, the American economy was founded on the twin growth of white supremacy and capitalism and white, suprem white supremacy and exploitation of slaves was one of the key aspects of not just the launching of capitalism, which is how many Marxists want to understand it, but the continued operation of capitalism. Yeah. What's different, though, is that so while the bourgeoisie may always have been making money, I mean, a lot of the modern financial instruments were created for the slave trade, whether it was insurance or, or derivatives, mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't the case that a sharecropper, a factory worker, a hospital worker, a public school teacher, lives and futures depended on the operation of stock markets directly. Yeah. You know, the substitution of IRAs for pensions is just yes. one small, yes. not, not so small example of the, a massive change in how this economy works and how it brings people into it. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 absolutely right. And so we, if we don't, if we don't understand those again, if we don't understand those differences, then we'll 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 find ourselves kind of just rearticulating, you know, uh, making arguments that don't really fit the data, and then pol our politics will be problematic, right? We won't be able to de develop the proper political solutions to these modern day issues. Yeah, and we in Chicago and Illinois, we're seeing that with a governor that's a billionaire really demanding that the Chicago public school teacher, which is an overwhelmingly black and brown workforce, give up their pensions. Yes. And he's playing it off as, you know, gang-ridden Chicago and greedy teachers against the rest of the suburbanites and downstaters in the rest of the state. 
while everybody who's not a billionaire should be fighting for these teachers to keep their pensions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, I mean, if you look at right, if you look at the details of the Detroit bankruptcy, and it's and it's where Detroit city workers got pennies on the dollar, and they got more than what people thought they they would get, right? In part, in part because of contestation. But no, you see this happening in place after place after place. Public workers actually losing their stuff because of the financialization of the economy. And then because the even the language of public support and public work has been has atrophied, we just don't have the pushback. We just don't have the political pushback needed. So maybe that's a good note to conclude on, which is how are you thinking these days about both the immediate goals and sort of long-term visions we should have in terms of black politics? So immediate goals and as far as the ideational work that folks like you and I do is we need to be much more attentive to not just the political economy and the relationship between political economy and racial politics, but we need to start spending a lot more resources working together to, to really study what's happening in individual cities as well as the national level stuff. And then we need to ideationally kind of promote new or if not new models of how to understand this stuff. We need to kind of bring back older models that give us some purchase we need to actually connect that work to on-the-ground organizing in these cities, right? Whether it's the, uh, something like the BYP 100 in Chicago or as folks like Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle and other organizations in Baltimore. And then in the long term, we need to be thinking about how to create in- independent, in- independent political and, dem- and economic institutions that can a- enable us to do something like what they've been able to, what it looks like they're, they've been able to do in Jackson, which is not just elect an individual, in the case of uh, Chokwe Lumumba-san, but to actually elect kind of a tendency, like a broad-based tendency that's about taking the cities, about, about, uh, about taking the political and economic resources that the city has and redistribute it to the, uh, redistributing it to the populations that need it, that need it the most, and doing it in a way that's sustainable over time, that again extends outside of just a single person or a single political term. I think those are the tasks, and 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 we really have to drill down on this because because one of the problematic consequences of Trump's elections is that we've been so focused on Trump and the national level stuff that in a number of cases people have kind of lost the energy to organize at the local level or or they've they've been organizing at the local level so much they've been burnt out and in that gap we have a national push but we have no local push only thing i would add to that is i think one of the hard things that has always been true for social movements is how do you link those levels so one of the dangers in jackson obviously is that or any local area is that bondholders for example can really manipulate a given cities or a given regions financial fortunes and if we're not leaking those struggles on the ground in one hand with a with a larger struggle that can take, on, take so that individual cities progressive cities can't be isolated we're going to be in the long run be, be in trouble as well so we have to learn how to link the yes. local to the national to the global because these are not yeah. just american struggles oh that's absolutely right thank you that's absolutely right well Thank you very much. It's been, as always, educational and, and important. Look forward to more conversations soon. Oh, thank you very much. It's been an honor. Thanks for tuning in. 
please find us on racingcapitalism.com. That is racingcapitalism.com to access the show notes describing this and all the other episodes and stay up to date on the Racing Capitalism Project.